We are studying the work of the Holy Spirit and looking more closely into it and finding it's a very multifaceted work. If you take your Bibles and or your sermon outline, we have the text this morning found, as I said, beginning on page 12 and uh, then on to pages 13 and 14. So many passages about the uh, Holy Spirit in the Bible that it's difficult to to select just one. Uh, there'll be several that we refer to this morning, but uh, this one here has to do with the work of the Spirit, especially in, on in to the future. This is John 16. This is in the upper room, the time of Jesus' time with his disciples right before his departure. And he speaks to them and says, In a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no, long, no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn when the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth at a, at a to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. We lay it down as axiomatic and fundamental that the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer when they trust in Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit is part of the divine trinity and he lives within our hearts and moves within us and challenges us and teaches us as we've seen. And among the things that he brings to us in addition to life and salvation is the fruit of the Spirit. The, the uh, gifts of the Spirit come as well, but everyone receives the fruit of the Spirit. Not everyone receives all the gifts. And we looked last week, as Kevin taught us on the, one, the first one, love, noticing that these fruit of the Spirit, these nine fruit, are distributed by the Holy Spirit within us. And so I would say, as we begin, we need to understand that all of the fruit are present because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not all the gifts do we have, but each one of us possesses love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, because of the implantation, the, the entrance of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And let me say further that this is, these are the fruit of the Spirit. They are not our fruit. This has enormous implications. Because all these words imply certain virtues that the Greeks and the Romans and others sought us to attain and saw as good things. Justice, truth, beauty, righteousness, fairness, love, joy, peace, patience. These are not abstract goals. These are present realities 
in the life of the Christian. So you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, possess the Holy Spirit, and with that Holy Spirit comes the fruit of the Spirit, in varying degrees perhaps, but nevertheless, there it is. And we can draw and rely upon it. Our graduates now have received a diploma that they may rely upon not only to get a job, but to draw upon for education that they've received that they can use in their workplace and in their lives. They possess it. It can't be taken from them in an ordinary way. It's not something that can be stolen like a, a material possession. It's something that they have within them that they can draw upon and use in a variety of ways. Even more, does the believer possess the fruit of the Spirit? This is foundational. It's not something to which we attain. It's something that we possess. Because we have the Spirit, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Some of the gifts we have, some of the gifts we don't have. But the fruit is given to all. So you have within you, as you have the Holy Spirit within you, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. This morning we come to the second one, some would say the most troublesome of all, joy. Now having said what we do, that it is axiomatic that the believer possesses all of these fruit, doesn't answer all of our questions. And so the sermon this morning seeks to begin to answer those questions uh, bit by bit. Turn uh, now with me a bit more directly to the sermon. What is Christian joy, the second of the fruit of the Spirit? What is it? This is the one who I would say is the least well understood of all nine. And the one that causes the most perplexity among Christians is we don't think, seem to think of ourselves as having as much joy as we might. What is it? Well, I want to define it this way. It's not a proficiency that you have attained, but it is a possession that you have. And furthermore, it looks like this. It is a buoyancy and delight that comes from the spirit-produced enjoyment of the unchanging privileges that we have as the children of God. It comes from the assurance of our salvation and acceptance in Christ, not because of good deeds, but by grace. There's no better news than this, that I can be acceptable to God Almighty with his high and perfect standards because of the righteousness of Christ which have been given to me as a gift, not something that I earned, not something that I attained, and so something that I cannot lose. This is joy indeed. I remember when I was going through seminary, uh, working nights and part-time, one night I was taking out the trash. That was one of my important duties. And uh, it was a particularly tight time economically. So uh, that evening as I went out in the darkness, put the trash in the bin and came back in, there on the ground was a $5 bill in the, sun, in the moonlight or the street light, I forget, but sure stood out to me. Now this was a long time ago. $5 was a lot of money to me. It was just as if it fell from heaven. It was something that God did, as, a, as it were, for me. And it thrilled me to know that I might have a relationship with a Heavenly Father who knew my needs and responded to them. I didn't dance. I didn't sing. I put it in my pocket. 
but I felt an assurance that I was loved. That's Christian joy. It can come not just from finding $5 on the ground, or 50 or 5000 It can come from singing the truth into the ears of the Lord, rejoicing over the promises of the scriptures, as Kevin has said to our graduates. It comes in a lot of ways, but it's a delight and a buoyancy that results from something that the Spirit is producing in me. Remember, these are the fruit, not of Steve or Bob or Joe or Nancy. They are the fruit of the Spirit, and this is something that comes into us with the entrance of the Holy Spirit, and it gives us a delight in the unchanging privileges, the adoption, the, the, the reception into the family of God that is ours not because of good deeds, but by his grace. And it is further amplified by, the, by passages such as Zephaniah 3.18, which teaches us that the Lord rejoices over his people. Not only does he produce joy within us and from the inside, but he himself feels joy for us. Delight. It's his pleasure to have his children gathered around him speaking to him, praying to him, singing to him, trusting him. So this joy is expressed inwardly by the Holy Spirit and outwardly by the Father as he rejoices over his people. So we're covered in it. But I say buoyancy, it is a little bit like a cork. Sometimes it can be depressed. Sometimes it can be suppressed. And we come to that now in just a moment. But first a quote from a J.C. Ryle. Assurance, as I've been speaking about, goes far to set a child of God free. Sets us free from a painful kind of bondage. And it ministers mightily to our comfort, this assurance does. This is a little older way of saying that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is settled indeed. That the great debt is paid, praise the Lord. That the great disease is healed, hallelujah. That the great work is finished and all other businesses, diseases, debts, and works are by comparison very small. This is the outworking of the Holy Spirit's reflection of joy in our lives. And it is expressed through his work and because of the work. But as I say... Joy by itself uh, is in competition. Like a cork, sometimes it it sinks, it's suppressed, it's depressed down. Which brings us now into the complications. This is from another Puritan writer. Sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. So the immediate testimony of the Spirit comes to us saying, I am thy salvation, and our hearts are stirred up and comforted with joy inexpressible. This joy has degrees. Sometimes it's so clear and strong that we question nothing. But sometimes the joy of the Lord seems almost snuffed out. What is the opposite of Christian joy? What suppresses it? It's not sorrow, as we'll see. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But it is hopelessness. Christian joy exists and overlaps with sorrow. We begin to see that now in these passages. In this you greatly rejoice. This is something Jesus is referring to in the upper room. You're going to have trials. You're going to have difficulties in this world. You will be opposed. You will have sorrow. Now then he speaks of a future time when they won't, but 
even in the midst of these sorrows, passages like this tell us, in this you greatly rejoice, Peter writes, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Here is one of many passages in the New Testament which puts joy and sorrow right together. Right together. They overlap, they touch, they're almost kindred. Romans 5.3, we also rejoice not in our victories, but in our sufferings, because we know that suffering then produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So we get to hope from joy through sorrow, and without joy, we end in hopelessness. Thirdly, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. So we must say that closely allied to joy, Christian joy, is something that yields hope, and that is sorrow. Sorrow for sin. Blessed are they that mourn, Jesus taught us, for they shall be comforted. Sorrow is not the opposite of joy. It's a kindred, it's a friend, it's a, it's a cousin. What is the counterfeit of Christian joy? Well, it's often one of the reasons for misunderstanding where this, is, where this comes in. The counterfeit of Christian joy is the feeling that comes when we rest in our blessings and not the blesser. It's a temporary rush of elation that fades because its origin is self-love and it is rooted in idolatry. We've all had these feelings. The wind is at our back. We're living the dream for a few moments anyway. But that's a false rush, and it doesn't last, and it always ends in disappointment. The disciples felt it. At certain moments they said, let's make him king. He's so popular. We're a part of a real movement here. We're going to overthrow the Russians. We're going to bring in a new kingdom that he's speaking about. Let's do this thing. And then they see that it isn't going to happen, and that it's only their idea and that it's not what God wants. So the counterfeit of Christian joy is a feeling that we too often seek, that we too often chase after. It's a transitory mirage that doesn't amount to anything, but gives us a rush of emotion and success. The problem is it doesn't last. It fades quickly. So that is not Christian joy. Where does it come from? Well, Christian joy is not derived from temperament or mood. As I say again, all Christians have it. So, some of you may have a sunnier disposition. Some of you may be inclined to optimism. Others, less so. That's not Christian joy. That's temperament and mood. And it's a reflection of our brokenness. If we want to understand Christian joy... As with all of the other gifts of the fruit of the Spirit, we have to look at Jesus. Now, if you were describing Jesus and his attributes, would you use joy as among them? Most people wouldn't. Most people would speak of him being a man of peace, a man of conviction, a man of patience, a man of power. Joy is not normally attributed to him. Yeah, that's because we haven't looked closely enough 
but we haven't understood it completely enough. For he possessed, again, axiomatically by, by definition, he possessed the fruit of the Spirit as no one else. A fullness that no one else has ever approximated. He was love, joy, peace, the Prince of Peace, patience, kindness. Yes, Jesus was joyful, but we don't find a lot of instances of him being described as what we might think of as joyful because our definition of joyful is usually an outward expression or a fully inward elation that cannot be described to someone else. Christian joy comes from the Spirit living within us, producing in us some of the attributes of God. We don't have all of His attributes, but this is one of His attributes. He rejoices over you, He feels joy in His creation, and He gives us by His Spirit the implantation of this fruit. The Spirit delights in the work of the Trinity, and so do we. This comes because it is derived from hearing and understanding the gospel through Jesus Christ. That is where it comes from. But what is the relationship, as I've mentioned already briefly, between joy and sorrow and hope? They are often found together, as I said, and they overlap. They're found in this passage. They're found in 1 Peter 6, Romans 3, 1 Thessalonians 4. We find them many places. Verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. I haven't experienced this. But those of you who have know that this is an accurate and full description of the childbirth experience. It is extremely stressful. And there is pain and suffering involved in it, related all the way back to the first chap chapters of Genesis. But there is also overwhelming elation and sorrow when the process is completed. Joy and sorrow are often found together, and they are not opposites. In fact, in one of the great descriptions we have of Jesus' work, we are told in Hebrews 12 that he who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So how does this work itself out? What difference does this make for us? What is Jesus talking about when he says, I'm going to bring you joy and I'm going to give you joy by the Spirit? First of all, it is, as I say in the title this morning, the end of boredom. Now by that I don't mean momentary boredom. You're sitting in traffic and nothing's happening, nothing's moving, and you can't, you know, you turn on the radio or something to, as a pastime. I'm talking about the deep, crushing boredom of our culture today. People have nothing to do, nowhere to go, no hope. They are bored out of their minds. They're not just looking down at their cell phones in an idle moment. They are crushed because life is empty, tasteless, hopeless. Many live in Baltimore, as we've seen recently, but they live everywhere. 
They are wealthy and they are poor. They are in hospitals and jails, and they are in the highest boardrooms and halls of government and commerce. Boredom is an enormous problem in Western culture. What am I going to do with all this time? I'm doing some things, but I don't like any of it. I'm not headed anywhere. My life is just sort of consumed with trivialities. I'm moving from one thing to another, one day to another, but I'm bored out of my mind. The antidote to that, of course, is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in the middle of our lives is anything but boring. He challenges us and does bring sorrow and suffering into them. We don't go looking for it. It finds us. He uses sorrow and suffering and difficulty to stir us up, to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we know that our Savior is described as one who was familiar with suffering, well acquainted with sorrow, rejection, and difficulty, challenge. So part of the work of the Spirit in our lives is to bring us to joy through sorrow. And we know that there is no one who rejoiced more in his own death or in the sacrifices that he made than Jesus. So at the same time that he was experiencing and was so familiar with suffering, he was also rejoicing. This is why we have to look carefully at him to see Christian joy from him, because we normally see it as someone who's, you know, living the dream, having a party, having a great time. Jesus was having a terrific time in the midst of his sorrow because he loved us. And that fruit of the Spirit was manifesting itself and driving him forward. What about joy in circumstances? Well, you've heard it said that Christian joy and personal circumstances are unrelated. I, I don't agree with that, by the way. By that, it is meant that the expression of Christian joy does not depend on how you feel or what you're facing. I say it would be better to say that Christian joy is often expressed in the presence of adverse circumstances. Sometimes you'll read, or I may have even said before, joy is something that, that is divorced from circumstances. No, it's not. Joy, Christian joy, is informed by them. We encounter the trials, the sufferings, the losses, the sadnesses. And he's at work in us. He's begun a good work in us and he's going to carry it to completion. And he's going to use circumstances to manifest his glory in our lives. Christian joy can be seen in the midst of sorrow, perhaps most clearly. From the cross, in unspeakable suffering, Jesus looked down and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's joy. That's Christian joy. I'm in the moment. I'm in unbelievable pain. I am suffering, not only physically, but spiritually, the sin of the world. And I have grace. 
I have enough joy to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see it in various uh, circumstances in the scriptures. Paul and Silas, not Paula and Silas, but Paul and Silas are put in the Philippian jail. What are they doing? They're praying and singing. They're not uh, against their circumstances. They are through their circumstances. James, famous admonition in James chapter 1, he says, Count it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. You see how, again, the scripture brings together joy and suffering, joy and sorrow, joy and trials? They are expressed together. The one shines through the other. A woman giving birth, as we've seen, Jesus as he endured the sufferings of the cross for the joy that was set before him. If we want to know one of the things he was experiencing as he gave himself for us on the cross, as he gathered his disciples in the upper room, it was pure, full, divine joy. Even at the darkest of all roads and the most ungrateful of people. He was happy because he was going to be accounting for the reconciliation of his people. And as he was praying that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. In John 17. So what are we talking about? How do we experience it? It's unspeakable. You can describe it if you want to, write a poem, write a hymn, sing about it yourself. But the, the manifestation of Christian joy through his spirit within us is something so wonderful. Paul, Peter calls it joy unspeakable. And on several occasions, Paul refers to a surpassing greatness. Commentators have wondered exactly what he meant. I think he meant joy surpassing greatness of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. The surpassing greatness, as I, as I say in these uh, references, of walking with him, of acknowledging him, of having him work in my life. There's something so, too wonderful for words about it, and it produces a sensation and an elation that doesn't fade like a mirage, and that does build and build and build within us. So to summarize, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you are, have a, are a Christian and have the Holy Spirit, then you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you produce. It's something that he produces in you. And he manifests in it. You have joy in the Lord right now. Recognize that it is your strength. Set it free. Encourage it. Build it up. Let it go. But you don't have to attain it. Joy doesn't come as the result of Bible study and prayer. Joy comes as a result of the gift of the Holy Spirit in, in his people through the manifestation of his fruit. Now, Bible study and prayer will encourage our Christian joy. It will increase it. But it doesn't come from that. And we don't attain it by our good works, religious or otherwise. It is a gift. It is a gift that Jesus had in abundance and it didn't lead him into an easygoing, laughing, carefree attitude, which seems to be the world's definition of joy. It led him to service, 
to sorrow, to giving, and to bearing up under the most awful load. So Christian joy is a precious thing. You have it. Acknowledge it and rejoice in it as the Lord rejoices over you. Let us pray. Lord, I must confess I hadn't thought much about this until the sermon series came along, and now I begin to see the importance of the fruit of the Spirit play in our lives. And we pray this morning as we have considered Christian joy that you would give us the fullness of that fruit. O oh, Holy Spirit, bring it to pass more clearly and more fully in our lives, we pray. And thank you that we have it. Thank you that it sustains us in sorrow and suffering. Thank you that it gives us hope and delivers us from boredom. For you and work in us is never boring. The challenges that you give us and present to us never lets us sleep. They, ch they tug at us, they pinch us, they encourage us, and we thank you. And when our joy fades, we pray. May we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who ran that race with joy for us, and find in his spirit what we need to bear up under childbirth, disease, injury, relational trials, feelings of rejection. May we find what you have already given us, and may we rejoice in it. And thank you, Lord, that you rejoice over us, for we do not deserve it. We have done nothing to merit your delight in us, but you do. And it gives us hope for the future, that one day we shall be with you in eternal joy and rejoicing. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.